Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week, we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. You can support this broadcast by subscribing or donating at the allingospel.com website. So 1 Kings chapter 20, <laughs> uh, in chapter 19, we were following Elijah, and he just got a new buddy called Elisha, and they're hanging out down in southern Israel. And chapter 20 kind of does a meanwhile thing. Now we're going to flip back, and we're going to see what's happening with Ahab. But remember, while this is all happening, Elijah's having his time in the wilderness. He's away. He's not part of the story at this point. Um, so we pick up in chapter 20, after Israel just finished a three-year drought. They're weakened, they're tired, they're exhausted, and that's when the enemy attacks. Verse 1, now Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, gathered all his forces together. Thirty-two kings were with him, with horses and chariots, and he went up against and besieged Samaria and made war against it. Then he sent messengers into the city to Ahab, king of Israel, and said to him, thus says Ben-Hadad, your silver and your gold are mine, your loveliest wives and your children are mine. This is a horrible thing to say to anybody. Um, this is not a nice person. Ben-Hadad is a title, not necessarily a name, because every time we see Syria, the leader's name is still Ben-Hadad. So think of it like king or pharaoh or Caesar. Uh, it's kind of an Assyrian word for their leader. Um, here's the thing with this chapter. This chapter we're going to learn from a foolish king. And the entirety of the word of God is given to us to learn from. And, and we can learn as much from a fool as we can from a wise person. Because you can see what not to do when you study a fool. So we're going to see in this chapter that Ahab is given multiple chances to follow God. Remember, he already saw the fire on Mount Carmel. Like he's seen evidence of Yahweh. He knows Yahweh is powerful. He knows Yahweh exists. Yet he still acts like Yahweh isn't there to, to be part of his life. So... Um, Ben-Hadad then shows up. He has 32 kings. These kings during, in this period of history, these would be like civic leaders or like people that were over a, a video, like governors or mayors that had gathered. So it, it also indicates that Ben-Hadad's been on a series of conquests, that he goes around this part of the ancient world and extends their empire. And the ancient history is full of these empires that rise and they grow and they usually get too big and then they collapse. And, but as we go through history, those empires will get bigger and bigger and better and better governed because the one that takes over the last one gets more and more organized. So as the Greeks under Alexander take over, they establish language throughout the land. But then the Romans come and take over and have 800 years of dominion. So each of these empires gets a little more powerful and a little bigger. Ben-Hadad is nowhere near that level, yet 32 kings shows kind of the territory he's already conquered. And now he's turned his eyes on northern Israel. They're weak, they're deprived from a famine, they're, they're ripe for the plucking. Um, he sends messengers. This is a common negotiation, if it's even a negotiation, it's like not a negotiation, and just says, I want all your women and children, right? And all your money. Like, so in doing this, if it's a humiliating thing to say, I'm not even threatened by you, I'm just here to take all your stuff. He's a thief. 
And so he shows up, and the demand here is to hand over everything that would have made Ahab a king, his wealth and resources and his wives and children. He takes away his kingship, basically. And then I'm sure the follow-up expectation is to follow me. But we're going to see that Ben-Hadad, even though he's got 32 other kings with him, he doesn't seem to want Ahab with him, right? Because Ahab represents the people of God. It's a different relationship. He's not saying, come join my army. He's saying, I want everything you own. And so verse 4, And the king of Israel answered and said, My lord, O king, just as you say, I and all that I have are yours. So we see Ahab's character and this desire to get along with um, a thief. He wants to avoid conflict. This is a cowardly act. He just gives up his throne. Hasn't even talked to his elders about it. And he doesn't go to God and say, I need your help. So in, in, a, in a sense, Ahab is worshiping all these other gods, but he doesn't understand that there is a God that wants to help him. And so he's a fool. The world demands everything from him. God demands a, a limited amount of offerings and a delineation of what's holy and what's not. So it's funny that Ahab doesn't want to give God that little amount, but he's willing to give Ben-Hadad everything. And I, to me, this is just craziness, but you see it all the time. People don't want to give God his due, but they will give the enemy everything the enemy asks for. I'll give you my life, my time, my stress, my worry. So God isn't going to worry, and God's not going to rule in Ahab's life, but he's happy to let his own enemy rule his life. This is just nuts. They want his kingdom. They don't just want tribute or tithe. They want everything from him. And in this sense, you get an idea of we can learn from fools. You serve the things you love, and you fear, the, you fear the things that may take away those things that you love. And this works in every area of life. Ahab loves his comfort, so he fears the thing that's going to take away his comfort. And he's willing to give up his whole life for that, for that Let's all get along kind of thing. Ahab's hope here is then to pacify Ben-Hadad so that he'll stop, and that's foolish. You don't try to pacify a thief because they'll just take more. They see weakness and they pounce on it. So verse 5, then the messengers came back and said, thus speaks Ben-Hadad, saying, indeed, I've sent to you saying, you shall deliver me your silver gold, your wives and your children, but I will send my servants to you tomorrow about this time they shall search your house and the houses of your servants, and it shall be that whatever is pleasant in your eyes, they will, put their, they will put it in their hands and take it. So Ben-Hadad says, I want everything you own. Ahab says, sure, you can have it. And then he comes back with an even more stringent request. He's not asking to be friends with Ahab. He's asking to actually humiliate Ahab because of who he is and the people he represents. So this is kind of a, the idea that saying, I'm going to take everything that's pleasant in your eyes is even more extreme. Here's the thing. Ben-Hadad wants a fight. And if you've ever met bullies, they start by taking small things, and then they take bigger things. And when they sense weakness, they go after more and more and more stuff until they can exercise complete dominance over another person. Ben-Hadad's a bully. Winston Churchill used to say, you can't reason with a tiger when your head's in its mouth. And that's exactly where Ahab is right now. You can't reason with somebody who sees and thinks they have a meal in front of them, especially evil people. The enemy loves your weakness, and, it seeks for, and, and to them that weakness is like permission to take even more. 
And when the enemy sees that it has any kind of power, it'll use it to destroy. There's a rabid, scorched earth mentality for Ben-Hadad here. He doesn't want to make friends with Israel. He wants to completely destroy Israel. We're going to go into your house and search it, and anything you find valuable, we're going to take all your sentimental stuff. So he's not just taking away Ahab's kingship, he's taking away Ahab's dignity. There's a difference there. Our only hope in the face of that kind of rage is an allegiance with an almighty God. You have to find a, someone to help you in the face of a bully. So the king of Israel called all the elders of the land and said, Notice, please, and see how this man seeks trouble. So Ahab recognizes it. He sent, for me, he sent to me for my wives, my children, my silver, my gold, and I did not deny him. So, it's, so, so frankly, he's willing to give up his wives and his children to this person. You know, honestly, just that idea of Ahab being a king and a protector, he's abdicating his responsibility as a king when he does that. Now he asks the leaders, this man seeks trouble. You know, he can see that with the heightened request that there's an aggression here. And all the elders and the people said to him, don't listen or consent, let's fight. Therefore he said to the messengers of Ben-Hadad, tell my lord the king all that you sent to your, for, your, for to your servant the first time I will do, but this thing I can't do. And all the messengers departed and brought back word to him. Then Ben-Hadad sent to him and said, the gods do so to me and more also if enough dust is left in Samaria for a handful for each of the people who follow me. So the king of Israel answered and said, tell him, let not one who puts on his armor boast like one who takes it off. So it just keeps escalating, right? But his, his sense of like, I want to take all your stuff. Sure, you can have it all, right? And frankly, Jesus taught when somebody comes to take your coat, you give them your cloak also, right? So there is that essence of like, I just want to make peace as much as possible. But it's like, no, 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 I want your, I want your dignity. And you're like, no, that kind of belongs to God. You can't have that. And so the, the fighting language just escalates here. Ahab doesn't know how to de-escalate the situation and get back to peace. So he, he kind of continues to just aggravate this person. The rhetoric heats up. Um, he has to take his stand, but he takes his stand somewhere after being responsible for his family. And to deny Ben-Hadad or this image of evil, to deny evil any part of your life is to pick a fight with evil. Because they want it all. And also we note here in Ben-Hadad's threat, the dust thing, he's going to wipe Samaria out. His desire isn't to bring in a 33rd king. His desire is to destroy the people of God. We're going to see later in the chapter that he fully recognizes this is a spiritual kind of issue. So verse 10, the language is exactly what we saw in chapter 19 with Jezebel's threat to Elijah. That It's just kind of a language they use. May the gods do to me like you know, or worse, or more also. Ahab engages in the posturing. His thing of let the, frankly, there's a little bit of wisdom in this. Let the one who puts on the armor not boast like the one who takes it off. Somebody who's been through the battle and survived has something to brag about. But if you haven't even fought the fight yet, you got nothing to brag about. Don't, don't, don't puff yourself up before you've been tested. Verse 12, and it happened when Ben-Hadad heard this message, and he and the kings were drinking at the command post, and he said to his servants, get ready, and they got ready to attack the city. No problem, we're ready to fight. This is exactly what Ben-Hadad wanted. I'm having a feeling that he's sending off these antagonistic messages to the king of Israel, and then he's going back with his buddies and laughing. Note that the spot we find Ben-Hadad is drinking with his buddies. So these other 32 kings were clearly drinking friends, 
and they would sit around and kind of hang out and party and then steal things and then move on to the next part of the world. And this was what you'd call a campaign. Verse 13 then is really uncommon. It's uncommon that a prophet would show up to Ahab because remember he's got 100 prophets living in caves and Elijah's down in the southern wilderness. Like Jezebel successfully threatened the lives of every prophet of God in the country. So the fact that suddenly a prophet shows up with Ahab is not a normal occurrence with Ahab because that prophet's risking their life to do this. But if God tells them to go tell Ahab something, they're going to go do it. So despite being hunted, verse 13, suddenly a prophet approaches Ahab, the king of Israel, saying, Thus says the Lord, Have you seen all this great multitude? Behold, I will deliver it into your hand today, and you shall know that I am the Lord. So Ahab said, by whom? <laughs> like, who's going to beat this army here? Like, we don't have that army. And, and he said, thus says the Lord, by the young leaders of the provinces. You're going to get some young people that aren't as screwed up as you are, Ahab. And they're going to have a willingness to fight the battles of God. They're going to have the energy to do it. They're going to have the boldness to do it. And they're not going to care what Ben-Hadad thinks about them. They're going to go off and just do the righteous work. So who will set the battle in order? And he answered, you will. So Ahab, you're going to organize this. Here's the interesting thing with Ahab, and I can't get my head around this kind of character, other than he's just weak. But he does what the prophet tells him to do. And this is interesting because it looks a lot like when Ahab encountered Elijah on the mountain. He actually does what he's told when he's told directly to do something. He's a very influenced guy, right? Kind of goes whichever way the wind blows. So this prophet shows up. He says, fight this fight. Get into this battle. And then he mustered the young leaders of the provinces. Verse 15, that's exactly what the prophet told him to do. And there were 232 after them. And he mustered all the people, all the children of Israel, 7,000. So he's got this little army. 7,000 is noted. God's intervening not for Ahab at this point, because Ahab we know has attacked the people of God, but he's intervening because the people of Israel are about to be attacked. And God made a covenant with Israel that he would protect them. He didn't say whether or not you have a good king. He said, I'm going to step in when I need to. So God shows up. The prophet doesn't have a name. Some people argue this could be Elijah or something. But if we read the last chapter, we know Elijah's kind of gone at this point. 7,000 soldiers is not a statement of significance. In fact, it's a really small number for an army. We know from past chapters that God's people have had armies over 600,000 people. I'm sorry, over 100,000 six-digit numbers. So an army of only 7,000 shows you how weak Israel is. Um, on the other hand, we know the number seven is not an insignificant number. So you've got this divinely appointed group. I think God loves these odds. You know, a small little army versus a big army feels like a David and Goliath situation. And if God pulls this off, he gets the glory, not Ahab and not the army. He gets the glory. So God has every reason to abandon Ahab, but he mercifully chooses not to abandon Ahab. He says, you shall know. This assumes that Ahab still doesn't know this. He thinks Ben-Hadad is his Lord because he called him his Lord. But what he doesn't understand is who his real Lord, his real Lord is, his real God is. His Lord's doing this. I'm going to do this so you should know, so that you know that I am the Lord. Ahab doesn't see the victory. God does. Verse 16. So they went out at noon. It's like a Western showdown kind of situation. They went out at noon. Meanwhile, Ben-Hadad and the 32 kings helping him were getting drunk at the command post. 
you can see Ben-Hadad's priorities here. The young leaders of the province went out first, and Ben-Hadad sent out a patrol, and they told him, saying, men are coming out of Samaria. They don't even say an army. Like, 7,000 people is like a delegation, right? Men are coming out of Samaria. So he said, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, take them alive. I think that's a joke. And I don't know how you read that, but like usually it would be, if they've come out for peace, take them alive. If they've come out for war, slaughter them or kill them. But he's like, they're so insignificant that even if they've come out to fight, we're just going to take them alive. Like they don't even have command over that. So I think he's making funny. It's just not a very good joke, and that's probably because he's drunk. So 17 has commanded, if the king's in front, it looks like war. So the fact that the young men are in front and Ahab's not maybe is why this delegation is able to get so close to the camp. They don't see it as a battle array because Ahab's not in front of it. Here's another thought. If Ahab was in front of this army, he'd get to take credit for the victory. So by God saying you're going to arrange it, but you're going to send the young men out, Ahab doesn't get to take any of the glory of this situation. And Ahab's probably okay with it because he probably thinks they're all going to get slaughtered. Verse 19, Then these young leaders of the provinces went out of the city with the army which followed them, each one killed his man. So the Syrians fled, and Israel pursued them. And Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, escaped on a horse with the cavalry. And then the king of Israel went out and attacked the horses and the chariots and killed the Syrians with a great slaughter. So this is a huge victory for Israel. You got this army of Assyria, 32 kings, it's not a small force, gathered in a raid against them, and the Lord just does this wonder. In verse 20, each one killed his man. And I, I kept reading that, and it kept ringing all week and as I'm getting ready for the Bible study. Each one killed his man. Now, spiritually, if in the church we go do spiritual battle with spiritual things and we each get our person, think of the multiplicative effect of that. Think of one person you know that's not living in the light of God's grace and glory. What if prayerfully speaking, every person in this room was able to win that person to the kingdom, essentially killing the old person and having a new spirit rise in them with God's help. Like that's that kind of idea of just in the spiritual wars that we fight, what if each one of us got our person? And all of a sudden, like we are, we're seeing this massive renewal of spirit all over the place. And that's the kind of victory this is. In a battlefield, it's usually pitched. So for each person in the Israelite army to get one kill, that's kind of miraculous. So we know that at least 7,000 people died, and this sends the Syrians a-running. I like in verse 21 that Ahab jumps in at the end and starts charging in and starts after the battle's kind of been turned. Then verse 22, the prophet came to the king of Israel and said to him, Go strengthen yourself. Take note and see what you should do, for in the spring of the year, the king of Syria will come up against you. Now we start to see images of how evil works. So there's this mockery. There's this attack. I'm going to take everything you can. But then the people of God defend themselves. And he runs away and he's scared. And what a great asset militarily to have a prophet telling you what's going to happen next. And basically, like, get ready. Get your defenses set up. Don't be at rest. Even though the Lord won this battle this day, be on your guard. And get yourself ready for the next attack because it's coming. And when it comes, be strengthened against it. So you got this victory, Ahab. Now I want you to build on this victory. And I feel like the Lord's just trying to work with Ahab. Then the servants of the king of Syria said to him, 
Their gods are gods of the hills. Therefore, they were stronger than we. But if we fight them again in the plain, surely we will be stronger than they. So do this thing. Dismiss the kings, each from his position, and put captains in their places. You shall muster an army like the army that you have lost, horse for horse and chariot for chariot, and then we will fight them in the plain. Surely we will be stronger than they. And he listened to their voice, and he did so. This is really, like, from an earthly sense, this is great logic. Okay, they beat us because we fought them in the hills with chariots. But if we fight them on the plain, we're going to be in good shape. But it's not earthly advice. Notice that they frame this in terms of a spiritual battle. And I think this is the thing where God's like, okay, now I'm done with these people. Because they minimize God. This is the... This is just the essence of, I think, what evil doesn't understand about Yahweh is that Yahweh is all-powerful. So they make this mistake. They think Yahweh is just the God of the hills, verse 23. And that if they fight in a different geographical location, they'll be stronger than God. Okay, in that situation, Jesus is great for you, but over here I don't see Jesus helping me at all. And you're minimizing the power of God when you do that. So this is true of demons, right? There's a territorial understanding in the Bible. And this is a really, so I, I don't want to, I think we could talk about this if we want to, but this idea of hills and plains being domains of gods. Remember when they're saying gods plural from the Yahweh perspective, we're talking about demons, spiritual beings that have dominion over territories. And they're assuming that Yahweh operates like their gods do. And so this is a passage from Daniel chapter 10. Maybe you, you know this passage, but there is a concept in the Bible, we get little hints of it, that demons have different territories they've been assigned. So listen to this. Then he said to me, don't fear, Daniel, for from the first day that I set your heart to understand and to, and, and to humble yourself before God, your words were heard. Daniel's praying and the Lord hears the prayer. And I've come because of your words, but the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, and behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I'd been left alone with the kings of Persia. That's a really interesting passage. That there's something about angels and demons where there's a spiritual battle happening, and they call the demons the, the kings of Persia, the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Satan's called the prince of, the, of this age, or the prince of the air, right? Emptiness. And so there is this idea that when they're talking about the gods of the hills and the gods of the plains, that they're talking about things that have some spiritual truth to it. But they're misunderstanding that Yahweh's above all of that. He's not part of all of that. So there's a dominion question here. In Jude 1.6, um, they talk about angels having assigned domains or duties that angels are given by God. And their post is one they're not supposed to keep and hold. So even on the good side of the spiritual battle, there are angels that have responsibilities too. So this is curious that you see that coming out in, all the, in these kind of polytheistic religions. The world is a staging ground that God has created to test humanity. And that staging ground has a lot of stuff messed up about it. And part of what's messed up is that there are demonic forces that have dominions over certain domains and territories. And that the nations of the world are also have a spiritual element to them. And for me, at least, I find this is fascinating. It's not something I would live or die on, and it's not a concept I'd introduce to a brand new believer because they're just going to get lost in that kind of thing. And Hollywood loves this kind of narrative and story, right? 
Um, but it is, it is an interesting glimpse of the spiritual world that we get in various places throughout the Bible. And this is kind of one of them, that Syrian perspective of territories and dominions. If God's then redeeming the world, Jesus says to do that, he has to bind the strong man. We got this in Mark chapter 3. So if you're going to come and take territory from the enemy, you have to bind the person that's guarding that territory. And he's saying this in reference to casting out demons when he does it. So even Jesus has this idea that there's territory here, and it's not the demons do not have authority anymore. And Jesus is taking that authority person by person, soul by soul. Everyone gets their man. And Jesus is just introducing that as part of what the church does, is that we heal and help people and help to cleanse the spirit with the Holy Spirit so that we can have an, a, a nation of people, a kingdom of God that lives for holiness and impurity. So I think even today sometimes we don't use this language, but people consider what they think God is versus what he's revealed himself to be. And that's what the Syrians are doing here. They're telling God that he's a God of the hills. And in doing that, they make God into a reduced kind of idol. It's still called Yahweh, but it's an idol Yahweh. It's not the real Yahweh. It's not the almighty God that we're talking about. It's the human version of God that we're talking about. Of the past, a God of the permissive, a God of the non-judgmental, a God of the passive. Like we make God into what we want our God to be. And in doing that, that's a form of idol worship. We're, tell we're telling ourselves that God's something that God has never said that he is. And so the biblical perspective, it's part of why we read and study the Bible, is we want to get to know what God says he is, not what people say he is, not what the Syrians say he is. And he's not just the God of this or that or this. He's the God of everyone, all over, all the time, all, all powerful, all dominion. So God's going to help Ahab this guy who has denied him over and over and over again, and yet we sometimes have a perspective that God won't help us. How sad that is. How limiting that is. Why wouldn't God help you? Why wouldn't God change your life? Why wouldn't God use you in ways that he wants to? It's never in our own timing, because we're always in a greater rush or too lazy, one or the other, but it's always in God's timing. And he said, he's called you for a purpose, and he's called you to his purpose. So sometimes I think we think a lot of ourselves and we think God won't do this in our life or he's not moving quick enough. But if God's here to help Ahab, do you really think he's not here to help you too? And beware of turning the, the proper image of God into your image of God. Understand God is all-powerful. Don't reduce him into anything less than an almighty, all-powerful God. To belittle God in that kind of thinking is the a very definition of blasphemy. You're calling God something less than what he is. That's blasphemy. So he's going to muster an army. I think this is great advice for the king of Syria. You go get a real army. Get rid of these kings, your drinking buddies, and bring in actual military leaders. Right? This is great advice from an earthly perspective. But the army that Syria is going to raise is nothing in the face of an almighty God. And God's now going to show them that because of their, their blasphemy, essentially. Surely we will be stronger. The world often makes this error because they don't understand what real strength is. Real strength is dependence on God. It's not simply how many chariots you get together. So it was, verse 26, in the spring of the year, this is when people make war in the spring of the year, that Ben-Hadad mustered the Syrians and went up to Aphek to fight against Israel. And the children of Israel were mustered and given provisions 
and they went against them. Now the children of Israel encamped before them like two little flocks of goats while the Syrians filled the countryside. Again, David and Goliath. Like they got two little flocks of goats. The Syrians have this mighty empire. Complete imbalance of force. This is going to be a wipeout. That's what it would look like. This is the power of the world, the gathered nations versus some goats, right? And that's not greatest of all time goats. That's just goats, right? This is perfect. God loves these odds. And he uses these odds. Verse 28, then a man of God, just again, a nameless prophet shows up, risking his life. A name of God came and spoke to the king of Israel and said, thus says the Lord, because the Syrians have said the Lord is the God of the hills and he's not the God of the valleys, therefore I will deliver all this great multitude into your hand and you shall know that I am the Lord. God's, again, still interested that Ahab gets to know him. I just, this is so merciful and so good. God, Ahab, I'm going to keep giving you a chance. But this is about God's witness on earth. If you belittle God and then bring your army against God's people, God's going to show up to defend his people. He takes their assumptions about him personal, and, and God's now got a beef with them directly. Verse 29, and they camped on the opposite each other for seven days. Not an insignificant number. So it was on that seventh day that the battle was joined and the children of Israel killed 100,000 foot soldiers of the Syrians in one day. That means the flock of goats did pretty well. But the rest of them fled to Aphek into the city and then a wall fell on 27,000 of the men who were left. That's a big wall, right? How unlucky do you have to be to get wiped out like 1,000 to 7,000-ish? And then a wall falls on you as you escape. So you're like, oh, we made it out of the battle. That's great. And then a wall falls on you. Like this is just the worst of things. And Ben-Hadad fled and went into the city into an inner chamber. Literally, he's hiding out as far away as he can get from the battlefield. God has utterly defeated the enemy by chapter 30, or verse 30. When God works through Israel for an overwhelming upset like this, you'd think the natural reaction would be to praise the Lord. Praise God. Look at what he's done. Look at the miracle that he's made. You know, I, I, honestly, I think it's amazing how quickly you can go from a revival generation in the church where thousands of people are giving their life to the Lord. A generation later, the kids don't even care. You know, and it's so quick. Humanity's so fickle. We forget the wonder and the work of God, the healing power of Jesus Christ in our lives. We can forget it within a generation, even less sometimes. So this massive victory comes in battle. And Ahab again sees Yahweh do a mighty work. And the question would be, does he seek after God at this point? And the answer is nope. Uh, he buddies up with Ben-Hadad. He tries to make buddies with the guy who wanted to rape his wives. Why would anyone do this? Why would anyone go after the very people that want to destroy you? Verse 31, Then his servants said to him, Look now, we've heard that the kings of the house of Israel are merciful kings. Please let us put sackcloth around our waist, waist, ropes around our head, and go out to the king of Israel. Perhaps he will spare your life. So they wore sackcloths around their waists and put ropes around their heads and came to the king of Israel and said, Your servant Ben-Hadad says, please let me live. And he said, is he still alive? Is he my brother? Okay, remember when the demon goes to Jesus and he's like, don't cast me out, leave me alone, Jesus. Let me go into the swine of pigs. 
And Jesus is like, get into the swine of pigs. Get out of here. Like, it's amazing that Ahab is like, he calls him his brother. I don't know about you, but this is a messed up vision of family. Like, this is not the family that we talk about when we're talking about the church. Ben-Hadad is not his brother. He's this evil man that came to steal, kill, and destroy. But the tone changes. Again, we have this interaction between the enemy and the people of Israel. Verse 31, they know the reputation of Israel is one of merciful. Even evil knows that good people are kind of obligated to do good, and they're trying to use that against good people. This is just one, again, evil gets caught in the act. They're caught red-handed. They have a hundred, if they beat Israel, they would have absolutely wiped out Samaria. But it didn't turn out that way because God intervened. So initially, it's their reputation is being perceived as weak. And the enemy perceives that the godly people are weak people. Now that reputation, if they're not dominated, they think they can manipulate them. So this is evil. If they can't dominate, they're going to manipulate And he says, your servant, Ben-Hadad does not believe himself less than Ahab. He's simply pleading for his life. So he's using language that he thinks will get him what he wants. They even dress up that way. The the sackcloth is to show your poverty. The rope around their head was this image that actually historically sets this in the right time period. Uh, When you dominated a king, you'd throw a rope around their head and drag them behind your chariot to show complete submission and domination. So by voluntarily putting the rope around your head is to show like you can just hook me to your chariot, I surrender, I give up. So it was an image of doing that. And he says, is he still alive, my brother? Like Ahab's like, oh, is Ben-Hadad still alive, my brother, my friend? And this sounds really crude, but it, it seems like the ugly kid that's looking for a date for prom, right? It's like Ahab's just, he, does, he he's, is he that desperate for a buddy? You really need this guy to be your friend, your pal, your brother? Like, he'll go to prom with anybody, even people that were trying to kill him. And so this, this, is, this weakness in Ahab just gets played on by the Syrians. Verse 33, now when the men were watching closely, they're totally watching Ahab. They're watching closely. Think about that. They're looking for any opening they can get, even though the Lord has defeated or won a battle here. They're watching closely to see whether any sign of mercy would come from him. And they quickly grasped at his word and said, yeah, your brother, Ben-Hadad. So he said, go bring him. And then Ben-Hadad came out to him and he had him come up into the chariot. Oh, so they grasped quickly at this. They're looking to pounce on mercy that's there. Now, when God gave the victory, the victory wasn't Ahab's to give up. So this is something that God's going to hold against Ahab, this this undeserved mercy that God, God was going to show his superiority over these evil folks, and, and Ahab doesn't follow the instructions here. So they're assuming they're going to get what's coming. They blew it, and Ahab's just a fool, and he gives up his advantage. So he calls him a brother, brings him in there, a brother, you know, a, a brother that wants to you know, take all your children and all your money and actually take anything that has any meaning or relevance to you. Anything that's valuable in your eyes, I want to destroy it. If I say things like that, I'm not your brother, and I'm not your friend. So in payment for the debts, Ahab remembers, and remember Ahab then declares him a, a brother here. It's interesting that he calls him a brother. It's an odd thing to do just at a strategic level and at a spiritual battle level. But think of this too. When you use familial language 
and you call somebody a brother or sister in Christ, if you call somebody part of your family, and under Old Testament law, you have a responsibility to that sibling, right? So when you adopt someone into your family, remember all the laws with bond servants? When you bring somebody in your household, it means you're going to provide for them and take care of them. It also has an effect on how you appropriate sin. Remember at Passover, any, the blood goes on the doorpost. Anybody in the household gets covered by that blood, including non-biological people that have been in bio, adopted into the family. There's also this thing called, like if a brother dies before the brothers had kids to inherit the land, it was the younger brother's job to marry that wife so that those kids could inherit the older brother's land. So there's even marriage relationships with family. So when Ahab calls this guy a brother, think of what he's saying under Jewish law. A when a brother dies, it's the other brother's job to adopt the kids and take them under his household, to take responsibility for that person's family. You inherit family debts under the law. So if a brother doesn't pay off the debts, you can have someone in your family be a redeemer of your debts and buy you out of bond service. So when Ahab calls him a brother, he's taken on his debts too. What debts does Ben-Hadad have? He's a blasphemer. What's the consequence of blasphemy? Death. So this is a really, when he says this, it's so easy to read over this and miss the significance. Finally, if my brother's been murdered or killed or damaged by somebody, under Jewish law, there's an avenger of blood that's a family member that comes out to avenge. So there's all these images of family and, and this idea of payment of debts. So when Ahab calls him a brother and invites him into his chariot, He's doing a very significant spiritual thing that he was never told to do by the Lord. He's making friends with the enemy. And he's making buddies with the enemy. Not just any enemy. Like, he's got other neighboring kingdoms that Ahab hasn't made war with. He's at war with Ben-Hadad because Ben-Hadad attacked him and wanted to destroy him and take everything he owned. So this passage becomes a Christian argument for there are times at which, when your home's being invaded that you take up arms and defend yourself. So this is kind of the arguments behind the Revolutionary War. This is the arguments behind hiding in the catacombs with Rome. Like this is an argument at times when God's people have to defend their families and their homes. But we don't make buddies with those people when God's done a thing. So by saying, come up into the chariot, he's elevating Ben-Hadad out of his sackcloth humility, and he's elevating him back up to the kingship of a chariot. It's an image of equal status. So he takes a blasphemer of God and makes him his equal, even though God's delivered him into his hand. Spiritually speaking, this is a really difficult passage. Verse 34. So Ben-Hadad said to him, The cities which my father took from your father I will restore, and you may set up marketplaces for yourself in Damascus as my father did in Samaria. And then Ahab said, I will send you away with this treaty. So he made a treaty with them and sent them away. Now, Syria was totally, like, totally defeated by the Israelites. Ben-Hadad had no authority like three seconds ago. And now he's giving him back cities. And really, Ahab could claim all of their territory, all 32 kings' cities and territory. So the fact that Ahab makes this deal, he's not even negotiating. He's just doing whatever it takes to make this person happy. And in doing that, he's giving up the things that belong to God. This is dangerous, and take note of it. Israel is still today in conflict with Syria. We're talking about a decision right now that has 
thousands of years of impact on the nation of Israel. They are still the enemies of God's people. They still attack God's people. Eight days war, 1948. Syria was one of the people attacking. So we still see this being a problem. With those people that hate God, we can live peacefully next door to them, but when we're attacked by them, we're supposed to defend and protect. And so you have this situation when God says to strike, Ahab was supposed to strike. When he's supposed to defend, he's supposed to have some self-respect at the end of it, not just desperately try to make buddies with the person that just tried to kill them. Verse 35, now a certain man of the sons of the prophets. Again, third time, a nameless prophet shows up at the risk of their own life. So God's just sending his people in to keep giving these messages to Ahab. Certain man of the sons of the prophets said to his neighbor, so one of the other prophets, by the word of the Lord, strike me, please. This is a, so this is a really odd situation. Like the prophets are hanging out together. You know, they're having, they're watching the Lord of the Rings, doing some things. And the one guy says to the other, hey, the Lord just told me to tell you to strike me really hard, really, really hard. And this guy, of course, says, and the man refused to strike. I'm not going to hit you. What are you talking about? And then he said to him, because you have not obeyed the voice of the Lord, Surely as soon as you depart from me, a lion shall kill you. And as soon as he left him, a lion found him and killed him. This is serious business. Like, dang, just because he didn't hit him? This is an image of what Ahab did. God told him to strike, and he didn't strike. And so this is tough for us that are peace-loving folks, right? This is a really difficult passage. He's willing to obey God, but not in this. I'll obey God in every regard, but not when you tell me to strike. God's put it on your heart to rebuke somebody, to, get, you know, to point out somebody's sin because he's saying, now's the time I want you to point that out to him. He, the Holy Spirit's been doing a work for a long time. And we're like, oh, I don't want to do that. I might get him upset. I want to put him in my chariot with me and have him be my brother. That's what I want. And so in doing this, Ahab refuses to strike. So this image with the prophets is pretty significant because God uses these prophets to play out parables of what he, he see, how he sees the situation. So the, the reminder here is that you've got this, the, the other thing is because the sons of the prophets are kind of this active remnant, they're likely the hundred people hiding in caves. Verse 37, and he found another man and said, strike me please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. I like that the second guy is like, no problem. I, and in my head, I'm imagining him walking up to this other person. He's like, I need you to, boom, like the punch comes before he even finishes the sentence. Because he just saw what happened to the other guy. So the Lord of the Lord has told me to tell you to, bow. And he hits him so hard, he wounds him. So it was not, it was not a half-hearted effort. It was, I am perfectly happy to carry out the word of the Lord, even when it's stuff I don't want to do. And again, this isn't like go off and be jihadists or something like that, right? Christ has clearly told us that our battles are flesh and blood. But sometimes in, in the battle, or our battles are spiritual, not flesh and blood. And sometimes in our spiritual battles, we have to say things to people that they don't want to hear. It's hard to hear things like that. And it's a rebuke that stings a little bit. But when we don't obey God in those things, we're not obeying God, period. And so there's this image of these two prophets. And again, this is here for us to learn. We can learn even from a fool. So he said, strike me, please. So the man struck him, inflicting a wound. Bam. And then the prophet departed and waited for the king by the road and disguised himself with a bandage over his eyes. If he's got a wound, he's bleeding. So this makes the disguise work. That's the reason for the hitting is it sends a message. 
It's an indication that there's another prophet who's sworn to serve God even in doing these things. So verse 39. As the king passed by, he cried out to the king and said, Your servant went out into the bits to the battle. And there a man came over and brought a man to me and said, Guard this man. If by any means he's missing, your life shall be for his life or else you shall pay a talent of silver. Notice that when kings took over the kingship of Israel, their primary duty was to protect their people, to guard the people of Israel. Remember the beginning of this story was Ahab saying, sure, you can have my wives and children. He wasn't doing his job. So the prophet presents a situation where he's given a duty to guard and protect this person, this single person. While your servants, verse 40, was busy here and there, he was gone. And then the king of Israel said to him, so shall your judgment be you yourself have decided it. You just told me you didn't keep your duty. So now you're guilty of it and you're going to be punished. So in verse 39, the servant went out. This is the same situation that Nathan and David had. Remember David sinned and Nathan came up and told him a story about a, a guy who had one sheep and the little sheep got... He, he brings it down to a, 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 a just enough of a difference between the two, but the same moral situation. There's thievery going on. And here it's the same moral situation. There's a duty to guard and protect going on. And then he gets David to say, well, that man shall surely have the punishment coming to him. And the prophet says, aha, you're that man. You get that. You just declared your own punishment because you weren't willing to show mercy. You're going to get it. And think of the Lord's prayer. Lord, forgive my trespasses as I forgive others. Like there's that idea. If you're going to be hard-hearted with people, God's going to judge you accordingly. This is why I don't judge people very often, right? I need the mercy. So he is told to guard this man, and then he says, surprise, you're the king. You were supposed to guard Israel, and you let this sucker live. You elevated him. You brought him into your chariot. You made him your brother. Now you're responsible for those behaviors. So he was busy here and there in uh, verse 40. Notice the primary sin of Ahab the moral comparison is that he was too dang busy to do what God had him to do. And folks, we live in the United States of America. We own busyness. We are the most busy people on earth and some of the least happy people on earth. Busyness does not help you get where you need to go. And it's this great ploy that if we're more busy, we're going to get closer to where we want to be in life, but we're actually going to maybe getting further away from the Lord and the obligations that God's given to us. Reducing those obligations of the world helps us to make time for the Lord. He was busy here and there. And then he was gone. Think of the opportunities we miss for the kingdom because we're too darn busy to do them. And so praise the Lord for people that have time in their life to do the work God's called them to do. And God doesn't ask that much of us to do those things. He asks for a portion of our time. Heck, Ben-Hadad wanted everything. And God just asks for a little sliver of our time and resources. He says, serve me. Do what I've asked you to do. Verse 40, so shall your judgment be. As Ahab acknowledges the guilt, he proclaims his own guilt at the same time. I think this is how it's going to be at the end of days when we're before the judgment seat. God's going to say, what do you think should happen here? And we're going to say, this is what justice looks like. And, and then God's going to say, well, then that's what justice is. Unless, of course, Jesus is our attorney. And Jesus comes in and says, no trial for Tom tonight because I got him. So let's just move on to the next person. But Ahab proclaims his own guilt. God just puts it in front of him. God told Ahab to guard his heart, to guard Israel, 
to guard worship, and he's failed in every regard of doing that and actually attacked the people of God. Verse 41, he hastened to take the bandage away from his eyes, and the king of Israel recognized him as one of the prophets. And then he said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you've let slip out of your hand a man who I appointed to utter destruction, therefore your life shall go for his life and your people for his people. So the king of Israel went to his house sullen and displeased and came to Samaria. Verse 41 says that Ahab recognized him. This is why he needed the disguise. Ahab actually knows who these prophets are, right? And some people argue that that might have been Elisha or Elijah that's there because he recognized him. But I have a feeling if there's only a hundred of them hiding out, he probably knew who a few of them were. Or in this chapter alone, we've seen two other nameless prophets show up. Maybe one of those prophets were the other prophets and he recognized them from the other visit. Point is, they're nameless. Like these are just the people of God doing their job. The disguise was necessary to even talk because Ahab was known for persecuting these people. So to even get, for God to even get in front of Ahab, he had to put a disguise on his servant to do it. And then the phrase here, appointed to utter destruction. That's a significant phrase biblically. It's, it's in Leviticus 20, 29, it's the concept of haram. Um, it is a thing that's devoted to destruction because the primary work of that thing is in contrast to the will of God. So Deuteronomy 7.23, Lord thy God shall deliver them unto you and shall destroy them with a mighty destruction, haram, until they are destroyed and they shall deliver to their kings into their hand and you shall destroy their name from under heaven. There is no man able to stand before them until you have utterly destroyed them. The graven images of their God shall be burnt with fire and they shall not desire silver or gold that is on them nor take it to thee lest you are snared within for it's an abomination to the Lord God. The religions of these ancient gods and, and the Syrians that made this about the gods of the hills versus the gods of the plains, they're an abomination before God because they're pretenders. And God wants them gone. He doesn't want them influencing his people. They are, in this sense, Ben-Adad, a blasphemer. God wanted him. He appointed him to destruction. Here's the other thing. If we have an eternal soul, being appointed for destruction means that God's carrying out a plan on earth that Ben-Hadad has just got to be removed from that plan. Notice that God commands destruction, not humans. We don't get to decide who needs to be destroyed by God. And I think that's important because throughout 2,000 years of Christian history, we've had some Christians that pick up swords and arms and start making their own decisions about who needs to be destroyed. But God decides who gets destroyed. And frankly, Jesus told us that we're looking to destroy ourselves first so that we die so that Christ can live in us. Leviticus 22, again, you shall say to the children of Israel, whoever the children of Israel or the strangers who dwell in Israel gives any descendants to Moloch, he shall surely be put to death. Haram, utter destruction. You don't serve these gods. The people of the land shall stone him with stones. I will set my face against that man and will cut him off from his people because he's given some of his descendants to Moloch. He's killed babies. He's defiled my sanctuary, profaned my holy name. And if the people of the land should in any way hide their eyes from the man when he gives some of his descendants to Moloch and they don't kill him, then I will set my face against that man and against his family. I will cut him off from his people and all who prostitute themselves with him to commit the harlotry of Moloch. This is the sin Ahab's guilty of. He turned his face from Ben-Adad when God had handed him over for utter destruction. And the law says, if you ignore it, you're guilty of it. 
if you don't pay attention to the things God wants you to, you're allowing those things when God's given you an opportunity to get them out of your life, then you're guilty of those things. This is tough, especially when people ask you your thoughts on certain hot-button issues, right? And you're thinking, oh, I'd just like to tell them what they want to hear and skip the battle. I don't want that. But there's times when God wants you to speak and, and give a biblical perspective on things. Your life shall go for his life. By turning away from him and calling him a brother, Ahab just inherited his sin. It's like Ahab attacked the children of Israel because he was okay with that person. So this is like the dark reverse version of a kinsman redeemer. Kinsman redeemer pays a debt and redeems somebody from destruction. But in this case, Ahab, by calling him brother, accepted his destruction and partook in it. This frankly gives the theological premise for heaven and hell. There's those that embrace God and come under God's family and house, and there's those that are okay with sin, and they embrace and become part of the family of the enemy, and they're appointed to utter destruction. So this is kind of that theological premise that we're getting shown in the Old Testament and how it works. So if you want to be buddies and make friends with sin, that's where you're going to end up. Notice that after two massive miraculous victories, the last sentence of this chapter says he was sullen and displeased. Two major victories of God, and at the end result, he's sullen and displeased and, 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 and upset. I think this is how it ends up, is that we see people that compromise with sin or try to buddy up with sin, and at the end result, it doesn't give you the results you thought it was going to give you. It just takes what should be a celebration and turns it into a misery kind of situation. Very few people see God as move as much as Ahab got to see God move. He's seen three miracles now, more if, depending on how you count them. He's seen God move in miraculous ways, yet he's sullen and displeased because he isn't repenting at all. He doesn't put himself in sackcloth and ashes like David did and put himself before the Lord saying, please, Lord, give me mercy. You don't see Ahab do any of that. And that's the difference between David and Ahab. David's the way you should do it. Ahab's the way not to do it. Benadad isn't there to help him. He isn't there to encourage him. In fact, in chapter 22, Benadad's going to be right back attacking the children of Israel. He's leaving an enemy out there and not putting an end to it. It amazes me how people can experience the consequences of sin and still embrace it. People can see the evidence and blessings of God and still not embrace it. Because God gave us, for some reason, gave us free will. Every spirit on this planet gets a chance to choose between life or death. As for me and my house, we follow the Lord. We choose God. And it's a choice that everybody gets to make. So in this chapter, we get Ahab making just every bad choice you can make in the face of evil, even as God miraculously intervenes for the people of Israel. And the end result of this is the northern kingdom is going to get hauled away. Like, at the end of the day, God's like, fine, you don't want me? You're on your own. Let's see what the world does with you. And the northern ten tribes get decimated after this. So, you know, welcome to the story of kings. And we'll, we'll jump back into chapter 21 next week, and we'll keep rolling through and seeing how this story unfolds. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your word. Even when we're studying a fool, Lord, help us to learn and be wise. Help us, Lord, as much as we love and, and embrace peace, as much as we don't want conflict with people, as much as we um, want to just get along with folks, 
Uh, Lord, we know that your name is sacred, and when your name's attacked, we're here to take a stand, and we're here to defend. So Lord, help us to do that. Help us to be unashamed of the name of Jesus Christ in a nation and in a culture and in a world that doesn't really want to hear from you. So Lord, let us be bold. Let us be joyful as we do it. Let us carry ourselves with the fruits of the Spirit, all of them. And Lord, let us just be the, pe- the people that you've raised us up to be, those that, that feast and pray and worship and study your word. And we do it because we see what it does for our soul. Lord, help us to grow, not in our time, but in yours. Help us to obey you in all regards, even when it comes to difficult conversations. Um, Lord, help us to grow in, in our confidence to follow your will. Lord, help us to recognize when you've done miracles. Help us to see the work that you've done in our life year after year. And Lord, may you just continue to bring us together as a Bible study. Lord, help us to just grow closer to one another. I pray for the relationships in this room. May your Holy Spirit just feed us and tie us together as friends and as brothers and sisters. Uh, Lord, because we want to be under your roof. And so, Lord, help us to do that with joy and with peace and to be the family of God. In Jesus' name, amen. If you found this teaching helpful, insightful, you can support this podcast by sharing it with a friend. Screenshot it, tag it, post it on your social media.